0: Well, today, we're in week three of a series that uh, I've called Ministry is Messy. And uh, I, I personally love this title. I have gotten several responses. People walking into the building, they see the back of the bulletin, they say, Ministry is Messy. That's going to be interesting. Um, and, I, and I said, you know, well, you just need to stay and you need to listen to, you know, what the message is going to be. And, um, and this has happened several times over the past few weeks. But for this series, we're spending our time in Luke chapter 9, And uh, this chapter clearly articulates the busy life of Jesus and his disciples. I've heard one pastor say that, you know, Jesus was often busy. He was never rushed. He was always busy. He was never rushed. And the stories that we're learning from remind us that ministry is often messy, right? The disciples were being stretched to do some things that were not always comfortable. Someone once said, if you uh, think yourself green... You will grow. If you think yourself ripe, you will rot. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, then you're a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple is someone who learns from Jesus to live like Jesus. Disciples are meant to be lifelong learners. In other words, we're to never stop growing. And God's goal for our lives is that we would grow to become more and more like Jesus. We read about this goal of his in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. The apostle Paul spells it out so clearly for us. He says, "So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord." And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed or transformed into his glorious image. Uh, My pastor in Oklahoma City, a guy by the name of Paul Cunningham, uh, he likes to say to his congregation, all healthy things grow, all growing things change. Change is not always easy, but change is necessary. Let me say that one more time. Uh, All healthy things grow. All growing things change. Change is not always easy, but change is necessary. So, in today's passage, we see the disciples experiencing some of these growing pains. During the feeding of the 5,000, which is the story that we looked at last week, they were given the opportunity to put into practice many of the things they'd been learning from Jesus. For example, how to serve people with compassion. That's something they really struggled with. You know, we're just, we're, we're people, we're humans. We struggle with that at times as well, we fall short. They were learning how to see problems as opportunities for God to work instead of opportunities to complain. Remember, complaining is the opposite of gratitude. We can't be thankful if we're complaining. They were learning how to give God what little they had and trusting him with the results. So the feeding of the 5,000 marked the end of what many scholars refer to as the great Galilean ministry. Uh, From this point forward, we see Jesus leaving the region of Galilee and beginning his journey to Jerusalem where he would ultimately be wrongly accused, beaten, and crucified. We also see Jesus spending a lot more time with the twelve during this period. Again, things were not getting any easier for them. The disciples were uh, being given more and more responsibility as they continued to grow in their faith. Now, I've entitled today's message, A Tale of Two Cities, not because it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, but because Jesus was between the city where his public ministry began, uh, Nazareth, the place uh, where he first taught, and the city where his public ministry was completed, Jerusalem, the place where he was crucified, So, in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 35, uh, we see Jesus teaching his disciples three important lessons. Uh, One about his person, who he really is. One about his sacrifice, what he would have to endure on the cross. Also, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And finally, a lesson about his kingdom. And these lessons were challenging, they really stretched the disciples as they continued to grow. I believe they do the same thing for us today as we continue to grow in our own Christian walk. Now, because of the length of this passage, I'm going to break it down into three parts this morning. I don't want you to feel like you've left today having uh, drinking water from a fire hydrant, All right? Sometimes that analogy, you know, is, is perfect for a sermon. Uh, it's just too much at once. I don't want it to be that way today. So before we dive in, let's pray together, and then we'll uh, see what God's word has for his people today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time of worship this morning. Um, I thank you for the story that Rich shared with us. And uh, just what a great reminder um, that nothing that we do is ever useless. Uh, Even the work that we do that others see, you're able to use that sometimes uh, in the lives of people that we may never get to meet. And so I do pray for this family this morning that has moved to that area from Illinois. Uh, I pray that this um, act of love, this act of service would... um, Maybe help them see a little more clearly who you are and how you've uh, sacrificed and loved for us. And Lord, I pray for you know, future VBSs that more and more children would come and hear about you. Lord, I pray for our time together today, that it would be for your glory and for the good of your people. Help me to get out of the way and for it to be your word that people take with them. We pray only in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. So three important lessons this morning, lessons that Jesus taught. Uh, The first lesson that he taught was about his person. In other words, who he really is. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Uh, Number one, his person. And we'll put that up on the screen as well. His person. So we see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. This is what we read. One day, uh, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and we can go ahead and throw that up on the screen as well. We've got a, uh, a, a slide person in training this week, so we can give him a hard time if you want to. <laughs> so I'll start from the beginning. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do people say I am? And well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. This is a familiar text, is it not? We've heard this many times when someone is giving their public confession of faith and they're baptized into Christ. So verse 20 says, then he asked them, he makes it personal here, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. And Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. So the context here, Uh, the crowds of people who were wanting to hear Jesus teach, who were wanting to see him perform some kind of miracle, uh, that that crowd was growing. Life was busy. Ministry was messy. And one way that Jesus was able to experience rest during this time was to spend time alone in prayer with his heavenly father. We see this over and over again. And we're reminded that prayer um, was given to us as a gift. Prayer, it was never meant to be um, our last line of defense, it's meant to be our first line of offense. We also see Jesus finding rest here because he's pulling away from the crowds, he's spending a time uh, alone with his his friends, the, the apostles. On this particular occasion, he asked them a very important question, and I've come to believe that this is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. You know, if you were to ask your friends today what other people think about you. You go to someone, you say, hey, what are people saying about me? What do people think about me? And that may be evidence of pride in your life, right? Maybe caring a little bit too much about what other people think. But this wasn't the case for Jesus, and the reason is because what we think and believe about Jesus matters, all right? It has eternal significance. In his commentary on this passage, Warren Wiersbe wrote that it's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. Think about that for just a moment. It's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. So we know Jesus prayed all night before choosing the 12 apostles. And here we see him praying before asking for their personal confession of faith. And notice how the question came in two parts. First, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Right, we've been a lot of places. We've seen a lot of people. We've ministered to a lot of people. What are people saying? The world Will have its opinions about Jesus. The world has its opinions about Jesus. Some people believe that he was simply a good teacher. Some people think he was just a prophet. Some people believe that um, he wasn't even a real person, that Jesus never existed. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends, they all have their own opinions about who they believe Jesus really is. So in the second part of the question, Jesus made things personal. He looked to his disciples. He asked this question, but who do you say I am? The world's going to have its opinions, but who do you say I am? And Peter responded first. I think that's kind of appropriate for him. He liked to speak up first most often. He was often wrong about things, but he wasn't wrong about this. He said, you are the Messiah sent from God. In the Greek, this confession is best translated as you are the Christ the son of the living God. So the world has its opinions, yes, but his followers have convictions. The world has its opinions, but his followers have convictions. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So, How are you saved? It's, it's by believing in your heart. It's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. We know from other places we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, not by works so that no man can boast. It was C.S. Lewis who popularized the statement, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. He was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. So Jesus either purposefully deceived all of mankind, that would make him a liar, was himself deluded and self-deceived, that would make him a lunatic, or he was divine, making him the Lord. You see, C.S. Lewis, Luke, And the apostles, they all agreed with one another that Jesus is the Lord. And this is the question that matters most. And so I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? What is it that you believe? You know, the Christian faith goes beyond knowing what other people think and believe, it goes beyond just having a bunch of facts and that you can, these facts that you can regurgitate and that you can tell other people. It goes beyond that. It requires us to have personal convictions for ourselves. I heard a story this past week about a woman um, who visited a, a psychiatrist and she said, you know, you've got to come help my husband. Um, he has delusions. He thinks he's an elevator. <laughs> Bring him to me, replied the psychiatrist. I'll straighten him out if I can. Oh, I can't do that, the wife said. He thinks, thinks he's an express elevator. He told me he doesn't stop on your floor. <laughs> what you think will have a profound impact on your life the bible tells us to take captive every thought what you think will have a profound impact on your life and what you believe about jesus will determine how you live it's as simple as this you you show me someone's behavior it can be traced back to what they truly believe what we believe determines how we live and so again, I ask you, who do you say Jesus is? And the second lesson that Jesus taught his disciples, if you're taking notes, number two, was about his sacrifice, what he would have to endure on the cross. And we also see a lesson here about what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. And so we'll start with verse 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus had already given the disciples a number of hints about what he would have to endure down the road, what he would have to go through on the cross, his sacrificial death. This is actually the first time that we read that he gave the disciples specific details about what would happen to him. This is the first of three statements that Jesus made in Luke's gospel about his death and resurrection. Now, Even though his words were clear, and we read something like this, and we have the end of the story, so we know exactly what Jesus was talking about. But even though his words were extremely clear, the twelve didn't quite understand what he was saying. I think this is for a couple of reasons. One, because of their immaturity at this point. And two, partially because it was still hidden from them by God. John 16, verse 12, Jesus said these words, There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. There are some truths that we simply couldn't handle at this point in our lives. Even if they were shared with us plain as day, we couldn't handle them. And so for the apostles, I'm guessing it was shocking to hear about how their own religious leaders would be the ones who would reject Jesus and then hand him over to be killed. This was the first time Jesus shared these these details, but it wasn't the last. The disciples, they needed time to process some of the things they were hearing. I think sometimes we need time to process the things that God's trying to teach us. Sometimes we don't get it right away. Well, Jesus didn't stop with this private announcement about his own death. Remember, he's talking directly with the disciples, specifically the, the 12 apostles. Well, he also made a public declaration about the cross for every person who is living, for, for listening, for every disciple. And this is for us today as well. It's for you and me. Verses 23 through 27, this is what we read. Then he said to the crowd, so I imagine Jesus talking with the 12 and then kind of turning to the masses, right? Right? Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So that word follower is best translated as disciple in the Greek. If any of you wants to be my follower, if any of you wants to be my disciple, this is for us today. This is part of the job description if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. First, you give up your own way. You deny self. Two, you take up your cross daily. And three, you follow Jesus. That's part of the job description. And so this was a turning point in Jesus' instruction to his disciples. When I think about this passage, I I think it's often what turns people away from Christianity today. They like the warm, fluffy stuff. They like the people. They may like the music on Sunday morning. But this, this requires something. It's often what turns people away. Actually, at this point forward, we see a a lot of people in Scripture stop following Jesus. Far too many American Christians, I, I believe, are content with being listeners who gain a lot of head knowledge but never put that knowledge into practice. It never becomes wisdom. Let's break this down a little bit. What did Jesus mean here? Well, to give up your own way, to give up your own way, that's surrendering your life to Jesus. He's not only Messiah and Savior, he's Lord of your life. Your life is no longer compartmentalized where you have a box for Sunday, or think of it as a house, like a room for Sunday, a room for work, a room for friends. a room, No, Jesus is Lord of your life. He fills every space. He affects every decision. He determines the next step that you take, the next words that come out of your mouth, the things that you're involved in, the things that you're not. To give up your own way is to turn a 180. It's to follow Jesus to take up your cross daily, that's the second thing here, is to sacrifice for Jesus. It will cost you something. You, you learn to say no to the things the world has to offer so that you can say yes to the things that God has for you. And let me in, let me, let me help you, uh, let you in on a little secret here. The things that God has for you is always better. It's always better. Take up your cross daily is to sacrifice for Jesus. To follow Jesus, this third thing here, is to live a life of service. It's to live a life of service for Jesus. So you go where He wants you to go, you say what He wants you to say, you do what He wants you to do. And so that brings us back to this idea of discipleship learning from Jesus to live like Jesus. Discipleship is a daily discipline, it's not a one time event. Like, we celebrate when someone publicly confesses their faith. We celebrate when someone is baptized into Christ. But far too often, we leave people in the baptistry. And they're like, what's next? I don't know. Good job. Way, way, way to go, God. You know. And then we just move on. Disci- that's really when discipleship begins. It's a daily discipline. We're called to follow Jesus one step at a time, one day at a time. And our motivation for all of this Our motivation is first and foremost to glorify God because he alone is worthy to receive glory. It's to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's to love our neighbor as ourself. It's to glorify God, to love God, and to love people. That's our motivation. We can't be ashamed of Jesus and follow him at the same time. That's why Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns. Luke had a couple of different audiences here that would have heard this and read this. His Greek audience would have had a really hard time wrapping their minds around believing in a God who could die. That would have been a struggle for them. His Jewish audience would have had a hard time believing that their Messiah, the one that was promised, the one they had been waiting for generations, would allow himself to be captured and killed. Both groups would have been ashamed of Jesus if they weren't able to look past his death to his resurrection and second coming. Then they wouldn't be ashamed anymore. But they would see Jesus as who he is, as the Lord of the universe, whose birth and life and and death, burial and resurrection is what brings salvation and life to all who believe. After the resurrection, some pretty radical things happened. This, This once timid group of disciples became bold in their faith. This once timid group of disciples were We're now boldly proclaiming the gospel, going to the places that God wanted them to go. It's like they weren't slurring their words anymore. After the resurrection, a few faithful people ended up turning the world upside down, so much so that we're talking about these truths today. It began with 12. Can you imagine what God could do with 130 in just this community? If if we were serious about our faith, if we didn't see our faith as just simply coming and sitting in a chair on Sunday morning, but we were, we were real about this. That we saw giving up our own way as surrender, taking up our cross daily as sacrifice and following Jesus as service. That our lives are not our own. We, we realize they were bought with a price. If you're a Christian, your life is not your own anymore. You belong to the King. Are you living for him? Are you loving him? Are you serving him? Have you given up your own way? Taken up your cross? Are you following Jesus? It's one thing to gain a lot of head knowledge. It's another thing to put that knowledge into practice. So that leads us to the third lesson that Jesus taught I think this lesson may have been the most confusing of the three for the disciples. It was a lesson about his kingdom, if you're taking notes, his kingdom. We read about this lesson um, in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. We'll throw the words up on the screen for you this morning. It says about eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James, kind of his inner three, Took him up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. This is happening. They were glorious to see. They were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep like usual. And when they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting uh, to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I think there may have only been one person there that day that was worthy of something like that. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And then a voice from the cloud said, a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Who can tell me what this event is called? You can say it loud. It's okay. The Transfiguration. You're right. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain to show them who he really was, not merely a great prophet, but God's own son. He also wanted to teach them more about his kingdom. Uh, Moses was there, representing the law. Elijah, representing the prophets. They appeared with Jesus. They were having a conversation about future events, specifically what Jesus would accomplish on the cross in Jerusalem. The three apostles had fallen asleep. (laughs) Can you imagine sleeping through something like this? When they woke up, this is the scene that they saw. This is what they witnessed that day. And I was trying to think this week, like, what would this have been like? And the only thing I can think of, I imagine that that it's a lot like what babies experience when they fall asleep in one location and they wake up in a completely new environment. (laughs) If they wake up in a new place and mom and dad are there, they pretty much just roll with the punches. It's good. If they wake up and mom and dad are gone, you better believe they're going to let everybody know about how unhappy they are. (laughs) Well, Peter, James, and John, they woke up. Jesus was there. But the environment was completely different. As far as the gospel records are concerned, the transfiguration was the only time during Jesus's earthly ministry when he revealed his glory in this way. Luke didn't use the words transfigure, but he described the same scene here that we find in Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9. And that word has significance. It has meaning and purpose. The word transfigure means a change in appearance that comes from within. It's what gives us the English word metamorphosis. I love how God like, orchestrates things because um, this is part of what we talked about in our Wednesday night group uh, for midweek this past week. So I'm, I'm curious, what comes to mind when you hear that word metamorphosis? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Change, a butterfly? Yeah, a butterfly. You hear that word, you think of butterflies. Well, the easy part of metaf- metamorphosis is the butterfly stage, right? There's a, there's a hard part. There's a difficult part. It's the process in the cocoon. It's the process of transformation. It's the process of, of change, of what that insect has to go through to become what it will be. Before Jesus could enter into his glory, he would have to go through the difficulty. He would have to go through the suffering. Before you and I I would say as we become like Jesus, it's not always an easy process, is it? Before you become this this end result that God has in mind for you, you have to experience the transformation, the change. It's that call to die to self daily. It's that, that call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Jesus. There will be some weeks that you, you show up on Sunday morning and there's a message that is just encouraging for you. And it's exactly what you needed to hear that Sunday. And you go out and there's a smile on your face and you're just excited about it, right? It's, it kind of gives you the, the warm feeling inside. You've, you've heard God's truth in that way. But there's going to be Sundays that you show up and you're going to be challenged to examine your life and, and to see if your life is what matches up with what God's plan and purpose is in his word. And that may require you to to leave here with a little different attitude. Maybe more reflective and and thinking about, okay, Lord, what what are those areas in my lives that I'm compartmentalizing? What are those things that I'm kind of keeping away from you? What is this transformation process that you're taking me through? It may be challenging. And so there there are at least four reasons for why Jesus revealed himself in this way to, to these three I'll go through these very quickly. First, it was God's seal of approval, I I believe, of Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, this came immediately following that confession, just a few days later. Second, it was the Father's way of encouraging the Son, strengthening him as he made his way to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. Thirdly, uh, Jesus' own words in verse 27 indicate that this event was a demonstration or an illustration of the promised kingdom of God. This verse says, "I tell you the truth, some of you standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God." I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time on that verse, like what does this mean? Well, just keep reading. <laughs> Jesus reveals his kingdom just a few days later in the transfiguration. The transfiguration reassured Peter, James, and John that the Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled, but first, Jesus would have to suffer before he could enter into his glory. And then finally, I think there's a practical lesson for us. There's a practical lesson for us and for those who were there that day that we are continually being transformed to be more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians three 18, I'll read this one more time. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. The Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed, as we are transformed into his glorious image. So as we continually surrender our lives to God, we are transformed to be more like Jesus. And there's a theological term for this process. It's one of my favorite words. It's the word sanctification. 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 It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. That God sanctifies us. There are three things that I I believe will always be present in the sanctification process of a Christian. And I'll conclude the sermon with these three things. If you're taking notes, the first thing is the word of God. It's the word of God. The first thing that God will use to make us more like Jesus, first and foremost, is his word. John chapter 17, verse 7 it says, sanctify them by the truth, and your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So as we read God's word, we're called to obey it. And in turn, with God's help, we, we grow in holiness. As we read God's word, uh, as we study God's word, we're called to apply the things that we read. When we spend time with God through his word, we learn more, first and foremost, about who he is, his character, and his nature. And we learn more about who we were created to be in Christ. So the word of God. The second thing is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. The second thing God will use is not a thing at all, but a person. The Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. There's one God in three persons. And in, in the introduction to his first letter, uh, the apostle Peter wrote these words, first uh, Peter chapter one, verses one and two. And he writes, To God's elect, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So part of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to sanctify us, is to make us more like Jesus. He does this by helping us, by convicting us, by filling us, by teaching us, guiding us, by giving us spiritual gifts, by sealing us, encouraging us, and comforting us. At some point down the road, I'd like to preach an entire sermon series on who the Holy Spirit is and the work that he does in our lives. Number three. This will be the last point for today. The fellowship of believers. The fellowship of believers. I think for American Christians, this is what we neglect most often. Right? We, we, we're great with God's word. Right? We know that that's truth, that's the final authority in our lives. We know that the Holy Spirit is growing us, that he's transforming us. But we neglect the fellowship of believers. God uses that to sanctify us. You see, we, we were created with a need for community, with a need for relationship, and we actually grow best alongside other Christians. In his second letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, the Apostle Paul said this, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. He says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And how are we to do this? along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, we grow best with other believers, not in isolation. And so I I will say that I believe it's impossible for you to be transformed into the person that God has in mind for you if you're trying to do that in isolation, if you're doing it alone. We were meant to go through this life alongside, arm in arm, with other believers. That's why we're told to not neglect gathering together as some people do. That's why, for us, one of our member expectations is that we would prioritize Sunday worship. That we encourage people to get into a small group or a Sunday school class where they can study God's Word and they can learn how to apply that to their lives alongside other Christians. That's why we encourage people to use the gifts that God has given them to serve in some capacity. The church is described as a body. And just like your body has many parts, if one of those body parts is out of commission, you're going to be handicapped. You are needed here. You are needed in the body of Christ. You're part of the body. And if you're MIA, the church is going to be handicapped. We need you. You need us. We grow best with other believers. So I go back to this opening quote. (laughs) If you think yourself green, you will grow. In other words, if you know that God's not done with you, if you know that he has promised to finish your life to completion, that that you haven't arrived, that you're still learning, you're still growing, you're going to grow. If you think yourself ripe, you will rot. I think this is a humility check for all of us today because none of us have arrived. As disciples, we're to never stop learning. We're to never stop growing. And so my final question for you today is this. Are you daily surrendering your life to Jesus? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Are you being sanctified? Are you growing to be more and more like Jesus? You know, could your significant other could your spouse look at your life and say, you know what? I, you're, you're a different person today than you were six months ago. Or you're a different person today than you were a year ago because of what God is doing in your life? I know for many of you in, the, in, in this room today, the answer would be absolutely yes. And as your pastor, I see that. But I also see for many that the answer is no. And that's not a judgmental thing, it's just reality. It's just reality. God's goal is to grow you, to make you more like Jesus. Are you being sanctified through God's word, through his spirit, and in the fellowship of believers? Don't neglect these things. It's God's goal for your life that you would give yourself to them.